Hey MW, it's Melissa. And Stephanie Carcace, two sisters and the founders of Millennial Women. And your host of Millennial Women Talk. We're so grateful you're sharing your time with us today. By tuning into this episode, you're investing in becoming the best version of you. And we are thrilled to be on this journey together. Look, let's face it. The conversation around money is awkward, frustrating, and often negative. But today's episode with the incredible Erin Laurie proves we already have all the right skills to get our finances back on track and own our financial abundance. Erin is the author of Broke Millennial and Broke Millennial Takes on Investing, which makes her our go-to girl to help us understand the do's and the don'ts of earning good credit, discovering new approaches to avoid overspending and increase savings, plus how to get out of debt and put our money to work. There were so many insightful moments on this episode, but here are some of our favorites. And until you address that for yourself, just kind of like going to therapy for any other reason, until you figure out your emotional relationship to money, it's gonna be really hard to make actual change. I just think of it in terms of ethics. They're treating you with more respect, they're treating other customers with more respect. So that's where I wanna be putting my money because you need to speak with your dollars. Okay, MW, the journey to getting closer to the best you starts right now. Boy, do we have a special guest for you today. We are interviewing Erin Laurie. She is the author of Broke Millennial. She was part of the top eight financial books in 2018, alongside powerhouses such as my, one of my favorites, Tony Robbins. We're so excited to talk to her today. What's so amazing about Erin is that she doesn't come from a financial background. She is just like us, but she is one smart, practical, and resourceful millennial woman. And we are so excited and honored to have her here with us today. Please, everyone, welcome Erin Laurie. Hey, Hi, Erin. everyone. Great to be here. Thanks for the lovely introduction. Thank you for joining us. Of course. All right, Erin. So we're going to start at the very beginning of your financial journey. What inspired you to write The Broke Millennial? Uh, well, there are so many iterations of how it all began, but I would say the real inception for the idea of the originally blog and then book itself was one night over a cup of coffee at about two in the morning. So you deduce what we were doing before having that cup of coffee. A friend of mine and I were just at a local cafe in our neighborhood here in New York City. And we were talking about kind of the state of our lives, as you tend to do in your early 20s. At the time, we were 23. For context, I'm 29 now. And she had moved to New York to be an actress, as many people do. And I was saying, you know, I don't really understand why you're working a traditional job right now because you could be nannying, waitressing, doing whatever it is that you need to do in order to make ends meet and then still be out there hustling and going to auditions and trying to act. And for context, too, she had no debt, no student loans, came from a family of means. So worst case scenario, she could turn to somebody to help her out, wasn't married, no kids, really the ideal phase of life to be doing something like this. And she looked at me and said, you know, I just don't like to think about money. I just hope that I have enough at the end of the month. And this for me was this kind of glass shattering moment, which I know sounds super naive, but I grew up in a household where we talked about money all the time and it wasn't a stressful thing. It was just something that we discussed. And so even when I was only earning $23,000 living here in New York City, I still felt in control because I knew how to handle it. And I realized, wow, even people who grew up with money don't feel this way. I want to do something about this. And I did what anyone would do in the early 
2010 decade and I started a blog. Now I would be doing something like this or podcasting or a YouTube channel, but six years ago it was a blog. That's awesome. That's, That's awesome. so interesting. It's interesting that you're, you, that was the inspiration, right? I often, we find that it's such a non-open discussion. It's almost uncomfortable to talk about money. Um, you you started a blog and then can you move forward the narrative of just even as a generation and being a leader, a millennial woman thought leader in your own right of how we can begin to change that narrative and feeling uncomfortable and changing our relationship with money? That is the huge question. That last thing you just touched on, this idea of changing our relationship to money, which is why when I wrote the first book, really in the early chapters, that's what I go through is how do you emotionally relate to money? Because I feel like that's something that's a huge disconnect in how we're taught about money, how people think about money, is it's sort of similar to health, where you're told the right things to do. That doesn't mean you're going to do them. So you know that eating all this refined sugar and having all of this junk in your body isn't good for you, but you still crave it, and a lot of people are still going to eat it. So money's very similar, where we know all the rules, we're taught, not all of them, I will say, but we're taught a lot of the rules, we're taught that, you know, live below your means, don't overspend, pay off your credit card bills on time, like we cognitively understand this, but that's not going to prevent us from going out and impulse shopping or retail therapy or any of the other things that get us in trouble. Or maybe we just don't make enough money and we don't have enough to make ends meet. And it's really as simple as that. And unfortunately, we have this very toxic narrative in this country of like, well, then you're lazy or you're not doing something right or bad on you, as opposed to, no, no, this could be a systematic issue. And that's why that's happening. So there's so much to unpack. But what you can do to take control back is start to address your emotional relationship to money. And in the beginning of my first book, which is just Broke Millennial, Stop Scraping By and Get Your Financial Life Together, I do have people kind of go through this process of evaluating, why do I feel the way that I do about money? What are my earliest memories of money? How did my parents talk to me about money, if they talked to you about money at all? How did my parents talk to each other about it? Was it a source of tension? Was it something that just wasn't stressful? You know, you go, you got to reflect back on everything that you grew up around in order to kind of decode how you feel about money today. Now, I'm not trying to shame anyone's parents. I think everyone did the best that they could with the information they had at the time, but that doesn't always mean we were led down the right path. And until you address that for yourself, just kind of like going to therapy for any other reason, until you figure out your emotional relationship to money, it's going to be really hard to make actual change because you have to be able to do that hard work up front to know what your triggers are, to know why you spend the way you do, why it may or may not be hard for you to save. And once you address that, it's going to be easier to unlock moving forward how to set up systems and behaviors that will put you in the best space possible. Yeah, that makes so much sense. It's all psychological and emotional totally. to try to get your financial life together. But let's say that I'm somebody now who has debt, right? So student loan debt or just credit card debt or I started a business and now I'm in super, super debt. <laughs> you know, now if I, like, for example, I learned this. I'm like, hey, now it's a psychological, I got to do psychological and emotional work. But now I've got all this debt what should be my first move? Like now I understand, okay, I got to get my relationship with money right. But what's my first step into getting out of this debt and getting myself financially together? <laughs> yeah. The very first thing is honestly, I think the most painful and that's facing your numbers. So you have to actually sit down and figure out 
to the penny how much debt there is, where it is, you know, is it four different credit cards? If it is, write down the names of them, the balances, your monthly payment, the interest rates. You have to go through all of that nitty gritty. Same with student loans. You have to know every single detail because without every little bit of information, you cannot make a good plan. And that's also the next step then. As you figure out exactly how much there is, you face that numbers. And I swear that this is the really hard part is facing the numbers. Then you start to make a plan. And there's different ways to go about it. Two of the most popular that I would encourage people to look up are these systems called Debt Snowball and Debt Avalanche. It focuses on two different schools of thought. Debt Snowball is, I call it the makes your brain happy version of paying down debt, where essentially you are focusing on the smallest balance first and working your way up. So you're getting these little wins along the way, and hopefully that motivates you to keep pushing, keep going. Now you're still paying your minimums due on all of your debts. You don't stop paying any of the debts, but any extra money you put towards that smallest balance first, it's easiest to pay that off. And then you're like, yes, I can do it. Moving on. Debt Avalanche focuses on the math. It is a pure mathematical way to pay down debt, where if you focus on the interest rates, paying the highest interest rate down first and working your way down to the lowest, you're going to be saving yourself the most money over the life of paying off your debt. Which way is right? whichever one actually motivates you to pay it down. There really is no cut and dry way, right or wrong. Avalanche from a pure numbers perspective is the right way to do it. But the problem with that is if it takes you two years to get your first debt paid off, because that's the highest interest rate, that can be really demoralizing and people might not stick with it. So if debt snowball is going to work for you and work for your mindset, just do that one instead. Awesome. Could I, 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 I want to jump in into like a follow-up question to that, if that's okay. Yeah. Would we ever really truly be debt-free? And especially, I, I, I mean, we're in America, so like I don't want to make it just like a, an American perspective, but mm-hmm. like, would we ever truly be debt-free in our lifetime? Are we always going to have some sort of debt lingering around? I would hope that everyone has the opportunity to be debt-free. I think if you're thinking about stuff like a mortgage debt, that's the one that really kind of tends to hang heavy over people where everything else in your life might be paid off. You may or may not have ever had credit card debt. Student loans are gone. Car paid in full. The mortgage is usually that last final piece of the puzzle. And hopefully at some point in your life, yes, you are mortgage-free because then you own your house outright. And ideally, by the time you're looking at retirement, you really want to be, even including your mortgage, debt-free. But that also assumes you can buy property in the first place. I live in New York City. I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to own a home here. So if I decide (laughs) to retire here, I might still be a renter till I die. So it totally depends. (laughs) And in that case, I'm like, well, hey, it's not a debt. So I'm debt-free in that regard. So it just kind of depends on your school of thought. But I am bullish on the fact that, yes, I think everyone can achieve that, but it does take a lot of work and it also takes a lot of controlling certain impulses and deciding when things do and don't make sense for you in your financial life and not just making decisions based on what other people in your life are doing. So, Erin, we've been seeing this all over social, your no spending challenge. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Can you explain what exactly is this challenge and how often should we be implementing it? That is a great question. So I decided to do it for February. It's no spend challenge month, which not didn't get by me that this is the shortest month of the year. I will put that out there first. 
But really, the goal of a no-spend challenge, and the title scares people off, because I've had people comment like, well, I have to buy gas for my car. I'm like, yeah, of course you do. This isn't like you don't actually spend a penny in the month. It's no non-essential spending. So part of what I encourage people to do, and there are people who do like very militant no-spend challenges where it is very cut and dry. All you can spend money on is like rent or mortgage, transportation, food, you're done. I'm a little bit more lax than that because I'm also a bit more realistic than that. So my version of the challenge, first of all, I encourage everybody to customize it for themselves. I did this huge Google Doc. It was like, here's what the challenge is. Here are all of my rules. Here are my suggestions for how to tailor it to yourself. So for instance, for me personally, I'm allowed to, of course, pay my rent and all of my other bills and then spend money on groceries. However, looking at groceries, I'm trying not to spend on things that I don't really need. So that's also a good health benefit, (laughs) trying to keep those kind of self-indulgent things out of the basket when I'm grocery shopping. And then I put a ban on things like my beloved lattes. Not allowed to go and get a latte during the month. I have to make coffee at home, which I then on the back end was like, I'm gonna have some special flavored coffee creamer to like spice up my coffee life at home that I don't normally have so that it kind of keeps me on track. Um, I'm not allowed to do any rideshare services, so no Lyft, no Uber, anything like that. And I live in New York, so I don't have a car and I take the train everywhere. And so it can be especially now, if there's a safety issue, of course, I will break the rule right. and take Lyft or Uber. But otherwise, it's like, now, nah, girl, you're on the bus, you're on the subway. This is what you're doing. I'm trying to think. No, so no shopping that's not a necessity. Now, I do have this support group on Facebook that people have joined. And, of course, this is the month where, like, everybody's stuff is falling apart because they're not supposed to be buying. So poor one, like, one woman commented that her ironing board broke. And she and it was like February third. Oh my and gosh! She goes, my husband and I use this every day. I like, do I wait till March? I was like, no, <laughs> this is an essential thing. Like, I'm sorry that it happened now, but if you use it daily and it's like you need yeah. pressed clothes for work, like please buy your ironing board. So obviously, there are of course caveats to it. The goal of it is that one. I'm also encouraging people to do it with a tracking every penny challenge with your budgeting style. So every time you make a purchase, you write down what it is and how much it costs, because then you can go back and kind of audit your purchases. A thing that I've loved in the group that I started is people have also started tracking their impulses. So what do I want to be buying right now, which I thought was very clever. And at the end of this month, one, hopefully you've saved a little extra money you weren't expecting to save. And two, it's also kind of hopefully made you rethink some of your general spending habits, especially if you've been tracking those impulses. Now, I'm moving next month. So for me, I was like, this is a great month to kind of reset, save some extra cash, to have a little extra buffer when we're moving. Everyone's doing it for different reasons. Some people are trying to pay down credit card debt, whatever it is. Now, you asked how to implement it in your own life because a month is a very long time. Trust me, I'm 11 days in and it's been painful. This has not been the easiest thing I've ever done. I think it's a great rule of thumb in general to try to implement one or two days a week that we can do a no-spend challenge in our life. And then what I would really encourage you to do is take it a step further where if every day of the week... You either buy a coffee or you go out to lunch at work. And I'm not shaming anyone. I'm just creating a scenario. If that's something that's part of your lifestyle, then perhaps two days a week, you're like, I'm going to do a no spend. And on those days, the money you normally would spend, you put directly into savings. So you are actually saving that money. And that's one thing that I've really encouraged the people in the challenge to do is whenever you've had an impulse to buy something or when it is something you normally would purchase and you're not purchasing it right now 
put that money into savings because if it stays in checking, it's going to get spent in March. Like it's going to get spent soon. So actually you want to save that money. And same goes for any time you save money anywhere in life. If you use a coupon, if you negotiate something and maybe you get $10 off a month on your internet cable bill, whatever it is, put that extra money into savings on a reoccurring basis because then you're actually saving it. That's amazing. I love that. And I think that we should we should be a part of this challenge. Why are we not a part of this challenge this month? Girl, I've, I've been on the challenge, <laughs> sort of, on and off. But, you know, I would suppose that February not only is in a shorter month, so it's not so hard, but also that we have Valentine's, yeah. Galentine's yeah. Day. I mean, this is a little bit of a hard month, Erin, for <laughs> women. To- There's been a lot of conversation about that, too. And it's nice because we have both men and women that are part of the challenge. So both have brought it up. Like, what what do I do? And I think it's kind of funny because for me, I actually don't really celebrate Valentine's Day so much with my husband. Um, And this actually goes back to our very first Valentine's Day, which would have been about nine years ago at this point. Wow. Uh, Yep. And he was working on Valentine's Day. I was a senior in college. He was a junior in college. So we also didn't have a ton of money. But he was working, and so we couldn't spend actual Valentine's Day together. So we are like, oh, we'll just do something on the 15th. Well, we both didn't think it through, but on the 15th, everything's on sale. So, like, chocolates are 75% off. Like, teddy bears are 80% off. Whatever it is, there's all the sale on Valentine's Day stuff. So he got me a ton of stuff for Valentine's Day, our first year together, because he was like, it was super cheap. Like, we've always (laughs) been open like that. So now, like ever since then, we always celebrate on the 15th because we're like, let's just get the stuff for cheap. Why would we spend the same amount of money the day before? It doesn't matter. That is 100%. so percent. It was like when I discovered Marshalls and Nordstrom Rack later on, like in my tw- like late 20s. And I'm yeah. like, where has this been all my life? Why have I been paying full, <laughs> full sale, price. full price yeah. for my jeans? Like, why am I doing that? I love that. Now, of course, not everyone feels that way. So if your partner doesn't feel that way, don't pressure him or her into it. But also handmade gifts. Handmade cards are the best. Those yes. are the best. And I do Oh, for those. me, write me like a beautiful letter. Like, that's it. That's all I need. Like, <laughs> in your handwriting, whatever. I love that. I Anyways, love it. I love if it. Men, if you're listening, this is what women like. <laughs> <laughs> Keeping it simple. Keeping it simple. Yes. Hey, MWs. We absolutely love this conversation. We know money can be an uncomfortable topic, but it doesn't have to be. Women conversing about money and how to take control of our finances is so important. We're so happy you've tuned in. Yes, and speaking of taking control of our finances, we want to take a moment to tell you about how to access deals of up to 75% off. Yes, 75% off. Especially with the holidays coming up, why pay full price when you can be saving? Ladies, Retail Me Not is our one-stop shop for scoring all of the best Black Friday, Cyber Monday, and holiday deals. We are saving so much on things like toys, electronics, clothing, decorations, even travel, and so much more. With Retail Me Not, you can save everywhere you shop with easy access to online and in-store deals, plus cashback offers. Yes, ladies, this is totally Millennial Women Approved. Visit RetailMeNot.com or just download the app on Apple Store or Google Play. Whether it's on gifts for your friends and family or for yourself, because yes, girl, you deserve that. Start saving today. All right, ladies, let's get back into the conversation. 
Aaron, so let's say now we've got out of our debt, but we're trying to repair our credit, right? What are, I don't know if you have any knowledge on this area, but what should be the first steps of credit repair and trying to get that in order if we want to start to buy a house or make any big purchase? Right. Yes. So I love talking about credit because there's a lot of bad information out there as well. And I will say the first book has a lot of information about it. Now, easiest things to do. Credit cards can be your best friend if you're building or rebuilding or building in general credit. They also can be your worst enemy, so you have to be very careful about this. One of the best things that you can do is have a credit card and make one or two small reoccurring purchases every month. Pay that bill off on time and in full. So as soon as the statement comes in and let's say you owe $50, you pay that $50 in full. I think where a lot of people, especially beginner credit card users, get tripped up is where it says minimum due at the top of a statement. And you don't know. You were never taught. So you might just pay that minimum due thinking that is what I owe. And now what's going to happen is you didn't pay off the full balance. So anything that remains, now you have to start paying interest on that. Now you're in credit card debt. So the very big thing that please whatever you do with a credit card is always pay that full statement balance on time and in full. So that's thing one. Now, the reason that can be very helpful with you for building credit is your credit score is made up of five factors, but I'm only going to focus on two of them because two of them make up 65% of your credit score. So that is on-time payments and credit utilization. On-time payments makes up 35%. That's the biggest factor overall. And all it is, is do you pay your bills on time? That's all they want to know, because the best indicator of whether or not you're going to do it in the future is if you've done it in the past. So whatever happens, whether you're paying auto loan, mortgage, student loans, personal loans, credit cards, always make those payments on time. And if something has come up and you can't, be proactive about it and call your lender ahead of time as opposed to waiting until after the fact, because maybe they can work with you. So that's part, part one, making those payments on time. Two is this thing known as credit utilization, which is a very fancy word to how much of your available credit limit do you use? Now, to simplify it, let's say you have a credit card with a $1,000 line of credit and you purchase $200 worth of things on that credit limit. You've used $200 of your $1,000 limit, so you're 20% utilized. The goal is to use no more than 30% of your available credit limit. So if you have $1,000, you're not spending more than $300. Where were you, you five years ago? <laughs> <laughs> I'm loving all of this advice, Erin, I have to tell you. And this is one of those things where I said in the beginning, like the rules are easy if you know them, but they never teach us these rules. And so with credit utilization, there's a couple of things that get confusing about it. One is this thing where you might think in your head logically, I have a $1,000 line of credit. I can spend all $1,000 in a month, but I can pay it all off. So who cares? Like if as long as I'm not carrying debts, who cares? The credit bureaus care. Because in the best way I can explain it and from what I've understood from talking with them, they kind of think like, well, we want to kind of tempt you and we want you to prove to us that you're not going to spend all the money. So we're going to give you $1,000, but we only want you to spend 300 of that $1,000 or less. They're playing games. Let's be honest. Like, that, this is what it is. It's kind of like dating mind games, in my opinion. <laughs> so your goal as the consumer is to use 30% or less 
of your total utilization, and that's going to help improve your credit score. So on-time payments and low utilization. One of the best practices, especially if you're someone for whom a credit card might be a bit too much temptation, and maybe it shouldn't be kept in your wallet, one of the things I like to recommend is I bet you have one or two reoccurring charges every month, whether it's Netflix or Hulu or your cell phone bill. There's something that's probably linked to your credit card. Just link that. Let's say it's $12 for Netflix and you've linked that to your credit card. Your credit card's not even kept in your wallet because it's too much of a temptation for you. So every month you have this one very small $12 charge. Every month you pay it off on time and in full. So it's proving that you can use it. You can always pay it off and you're just using a tiny bit of it. And that's going to help improve your score. Now also, and pardon me if I'm going too far in the weeds here, but one more thing you can do is if you've gotten yourself in a lot of trouble and you can't get approved for a credit card, which happens, or maybe you've never had credit before, which is this catch-22 where if you've never had it, they don't want to give it to you. It's real fun right after you graduate college. There's something called a secured card where basically I call it a credit card with training wheels. So what you're going to do is you put down a deposit, usually about $200. It is refundable. And that deposit generally works as your line of credit. So the bank has collateral. So if you don't pay them back, they're like, Matt, doesn't matter. We'll just keep your deposit. So it's a way for you to start building it with these training wheels on and the bank has some level of protection. So same rules apply. Spend a tiny amount of it. So if you only have a $200 credit limit, seriously spend like no more than $15 in the week or in the month, sorry, and pay it off on time and in full. After about maybe six months to a year, you probably will have built a nice healthy credit score. You can go apply for a regular unsecured card. Then you can close the secured card and get your refundable deposit back, assuming you're in good standing. So that is one of the easiest ways to build if you're coming up from absolutely nothing. Just know with a secured card, there are plenty of options that have no annual fee. So you can do it without having to pay a fee and you shouldn't have to be paying any sort of activation fee. There are some a bit predatory products in that market space because they're kind of hitting people who are either on the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum or they're just beginners and they're like, well, we can take advantage of you. So just please be aware of the products that you're using if you do that. Interesting. Erin, you mentioned banking. Mm-hmm. How should we be banking? Should we be opting for larger banks, more local banks? And how should our relationship with our banker be like? Good question. And that idea between larger and local is something everybody kind of has to answer for him or herself. Because I do know that some people prefer community banks or prefer credit unions because they do like to support their local economy. So that is something that you might want to consider. I like to consider what am I getting charged? What are the fees? How are they treating me as a customer? And more importantly, how are they treating other customers? Because for some of us, you might never get hit with an overdraft fee. You may be so on your game that it's never going to be a problem and good for you. But what are they charging the people that do get hit? And the reason this is such a sticking point to me is because most of the time those fees, so for those who aren't familiar, an overdraft fee is what you get charged if you overdraw your bank account. So if you go negative, you spend too much money, the bank is gonna charge you a fee for that. So if you went out this morning and you it's payday and you're like, oh, I'm gonna have the money in my account, but maybe it hasn't cleared yet and you only had 15 bucks left and you bought a $25 lunch, you overdrew. So the bank will probably charge you about $35 for doing that. Sometimes they charge that up to four times in a day. Now, here's the thing. 
The people that are getting hit with this fee tend to be college students and people who are already in the lower part of our socioeconomic totem pole, so people who might be already living in poverty. $35 or $100 plus makes a huge difference in their life. That could be the difference between lights being kept on, mortgage getting paid, or rent getting paid, food on the table. That's why I feel so strongly about this is it might not impact you, but it impacts somebody. And I want these banks to be treating all of their customers with respect. Now that brings me to the idea of internet only banking. If you want to bank with the big guys and they charge these big fees, but you want to bank there for whatever reason, maybe it's because there's a branch close by, maybe you get paid in cash. So you need to be able to go in and deposit cash, whatever it is, that's okay. Just make sure you know what their fees are and make sure that they're not taking advantage of you. But there are these other up-and-comers, and and it's the internet-only banks. So we're talking things like Ally, um, Capital One 360 is an online bank as well. Uh, USAA is a big bank, but they're also an online bank. So there's a lot of other options out there. One, they usually give you 2% or higher on your savings account compared to 0.01%, which is what a lot of the big guys pay. And some of the community banks and some of the credit unions, so you do have to look into that. So at the very least, please keep your savings at an account that's earning you at least 2% because it makes a huge difference in the long run. They also tend to have what I would call real overdraft protection. So the money that if you have overdraft protection, it means if you go overdraft, it moves money automatically out of your savings into your checking. A lot of the big guys will charge you about $12 to move your own money from savings to checking, which costs them like less than a penny. These guys usually don't charge you anything to do that. The overdraft fees that they charge are usually significantly lower than what the bigger banks charge. They usually will refund ATM fees. So if you're with a big bank and there's no ATM from them nearby and you have to go into another bank branch, you're going to get hit with that bank branch's ATM fee, which might be $3. And a lot of times your bank charges you an additional fee for not using their bank's ATM. So it might cost you like five or six bucks to get access to your own money. I think that's highway robbery. So a lot of these internet-only banks will refund you maybe up to $9 or $12 a month in ATM fees, and then they also don't charge you an ATM fee. I just think of it in terms of ethics. They're treating you with more respect. They're treating other customers with more respect. So that's where I want to be putting my money because you need to speak with your dollars. Okay, so yeah. MWs, because this is a shock for me, online banking. Wow, Erin, thank you so much. I definitely got that out of this whole conversation, plus a lot more. But that is so interesting. So in your perspective, because you you seem to be very um, encouraging towards the online banking, could you name maybe some of the cons that would be towards an online banking? Yeah, if you get paid in cash, that's where it's a problem. Or maybe you work in an industry where you get a lot of tips because it's hard to deposit your money. Most of these banks don't have any bank branches, so you can't go in and deposit cash. It has to be either direct deposits or you're taking pictures of checks and depositing them on your cell phone, which is pretty common for all the banks online or not at this point. And here's another part of it. When I say online bank, sometimes people get confused because it's like, well, my bank is one of the big four banks and I can access it online or I have an app to get access to it. The difference is, Internet-only banks is the more appropriate term for these guys that I'm talking about because they don't have physical bank branches. They exclusively exist online. They are safe. That's usually one of the questions I get asked. You want to always make sure that your bank has something called FDIC insurance. 
So the FDIC is a government-backed entity. So if your bank failed for whatever reason, your money is protected up to $250,000. So that is one thing you want to make sure, no matter where you're banking, you want to make sure it's FDIC insured. But the online guys are that I referenced at least anyway. So it's the same sort of protections as the big banks you're used to. But if you do get paid in cash or if you make a lot of cash, that's really the only major con of it is because you can't go and deposit it with ease. I'm hopeful that in the next five or so years, they'll come up with some sort of a solution. I do know that Capital One 360, for instance, does have some of their Capital One cafes have an ATM where you can go and deposit cash in order to put it into your Capital One 360 account. But I don't know how prolific around the country those actually are. So if you're outside of a big city, probably not going to happen. And the other thing too is you can have more than one bank. So maybe you do your checking with one of the bigger guys where you can deposit your cash with ease, but maybe your savings is over with one of these guys giving you two plus percent on your savings account. Very, very interesting. So interesting. I'm going to start looking into that. I think that that's pretty cool. Okay, MW, we just had to take a quick second because I love how we are getting right down to the root of the problem when it comes to our finances. I couldn't agree more, Steph. And you know, speaking of getting right down to it, did you guys know that your gut is responsible for your overall health? Which is why we want to get to the gut of the matter and tell you about Four Sigmatic's Chai Latte Mushroom Mix. Four Sigmatic is a natural superfood company that specializes in mushroom-based drinks that benefit our immunity, energy, and longevity. They make a wide variety of blends, including their delicious mushroom coffee that we personally drink every morning, hot cocos, matcha, and other superfood blends just like this chai latte mushroom mix we've been currently enjoying. So yummy. Their lightly sweet and dairy-free chai latte supports a happy belly with gut-loving turkey tail, calming reishi, and classic carminative spices. We know what you're thinking, MW, turkey tail? Ladies, turkey tail is one of the best mushrooms for the gut, and paired with soothing reishi and carminative spices such as cinnamon and ginger, this creates a calming blend to support occasional stress, because let's face it, it happens, and our full body well-being. It's also ready to drink with just some hot water, and it's never been easier to take care of your gut and health with Four Sigmatic. This is definitely Millennial Women Approved. Try it now by going to foursigmatic.com forward slash MWtalk. That's F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C dot com forward slash M-W-T-A-L-K. And use the code MWtalk at checkout to get 15% off your purchase. All right, ladies, let's get back into this amazing conversation. Erin, so your new book, The Broke Millennial Takes on Investing. This is a big one because for millennials, like we don't really see investing as even a possibility for us sometimes. We're like, yeah, that's like what we do when we're in our 50s or like in our 60s or something like that. But talk to me a little bit about investing. What should we be investing in as first timers? Should it be stocks, real estate? Like what are your thoughts on that? First of all, if you're waiting until your 50s or 60s, it's too late. You're never going to get to it. <laughs> That's thing one. Well, the very first thing that most of us should be doing is our retirement plan. So whether that is you work for a traditional employer and you have access to a 401k and you're taking advantage of your 401k, maybe you're self-employed and you open up an IRA, that's your really your very first introduction to investing most of the time. And I also like to emphasize 
We like to say save for retirement. That's the vernacular that we use. It should be investing for retirement because that's what you should be doing. Now, in terms of what you're investing in, so first of all, I cannot give you prescriptive investing advice because I don't know you, I don't know your goals, I don't know your risk tolerance, all of these different factors. But what I will say is you definitely should be looking into the actual stock market, especially when you're on the younger side, because you have time. The market's going to go up and the market's going to go down. But over the life of your time as an investor, generally people will look at an average return of 7 to 8%. Can't promise you those returns, but on average, over the life of your time as an investor, that's pretty typical. So if you start early or you start now and maybe the market doesn't do so well and you're like, oh, this is so nerve wracking. I don't want to deal with this. The advantage is that when it swings back up, you're going to get all those good returns. So you don't want to keep pulling your money out. You want to be able to weather the ups and downs. The other reason you wanted to invest in stocks early And not individual stock picking. So I'm not saying like you go in and pick three stocks and put your money in. I'm going to recommend you look at mutual funds, index funds, and exchange traded funds because that gives you a lot of exposure to a lot of companies as opposed to just one company and one company doing one thing. Big reason is this concept of diversification. You want your money being exposed to different things and not just tied to one particular thing because if it's just to back this all the way up, let's say it's one company and that company is in tech. So not only is all of your money just in one company, it's in one type of industry, which is no diversity there, as opposed to maybe you're invested in an index that has all the biggest 500 companies in the United States, and those are in six different sectors, and you're in 500 companies in six different sectors. So if one company has a bad day, it's not going to ruin all of your returns. So that's why I do, especially for beginners, encourage you look at index funds, mutual funds, exchange-traded funds, instead of trying to individually stock pick, which for most people is never going to be something we do as investors. Now, as you get closer to retirement, you're going to want to change your portfolio to be a little bit more conservative, maybe some money in bonds, maybe you're even putting some in cash. It's just going to kind of depend on you and your time horizon, which is when you need access to your money and your risk tolerance and all these different factors. But you got to start early because if you wait till you're 50 or if you wait till you're 60, you're not giving your money enough time to do what it needs to do in the market in order to get you those returns. But if you start at 25 or 20 or even 30, well, not only does it have a lot of time, it can do a lot of the work for you, which is what I like to focus on. It's doing a lot of the heavy lifting for you. And if you wait, even if you put twice as much money in, so let's say if at 25 you started with 250 a month, but at 40 you put in $1,000 a month, you still might not catch up to your 25-year-old self, which is kind of crazy, but that's how it works. And my last pitch, because I know it's been a lot, but my last pitch for investing, life doesn't tend to get less complicated. And I think sometimes we live under this kind of delusion that I'm 25, I'm strapped, this isn't a good time for me, but when I'm 35, I'll have my debts paid off, I'll be making more money, etc. And that could be true. It probably is true. But you might be married, you might have a kid or two, you might own a house, So those are all big expenses. So while life might have started paying you more and debts are paid off, you've got all these new things. So starting starting young and being consistent, even with a smaller amount, is better than waiting a long time and trying to double or triple down.
I love that. Oh my gosh, Erin, you have brought the goods. You have brought the goods. This is so insightful. And what I love about you so much is just that you are a millennial woman, just like us, just like our womanhood. And you've been able to not only get your financial life together, but help us today get our financial life in order and help us to make more money by investing in the future. So we're so excited to read your new book. Thank you, Erin. It's been a true honor. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a blast. Thank you for tuning into today's episode. If you want to learn more about Aaron, visit BrokeMillennial.com. Subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes and Spotify. Ladies, this helps us continue to bring powerful conversations just like this to you every single week. Are you looking for free and discounted resources? Well, sign up right now to our free newsletter at WeAreMillennialWomen.com for subscriber-only freebies and perks to help you become the best version of yourself. And as always, we encourage you to continue on with the conversation. Keep being the strong, amazing woman that you are and never forget to live inspired. Until next time, MW. Always love Melissa and Stephanie Kirkaje.